2: As we're going to get to our interviews here in a second. The first one is with Curtis Strange, and uh, then on the back half, we have around the 40-minute mark, Paul Azinger. Uh, we recorded this back on May 6th when I went down to Bradenton. You guys heard the first part of that podcast, but uh, we talked about Shinnecock and the U.S. Open that was upcoming, and I cut that out of the podcast and am putting this in here. Uh, with the U.S. Open preview. Um, Before we get to that, if you guys have not heard, our friends at Callaway just announced another huge signing, one of the top amateurs in the world, Norman Zhang. Zhang had six collegiate wins at Oregon last year alone. He just won the Jack Nicklaus Player of the Year Award. He was a member of the 2017 U.S. Walker Cup team. I haven't had a chance to see this kid play yet, but I've watched him on YouTube, and I read Ryan Labner's piece on him, and uh, this kid is full of intrigue, and there are – So already some pretty outlandish Tiger comparisons being made, but uh, it's clear that this guy is going to make a huge impact on the game of golf. And uh, he's going to be making his pro debut the next few weeks with a full bag of Callaway clubs, a rogue Sub-Zero driver, X-forged irons, Mac Daddy 4 wedges, a Chrome Soft X golf ball, and an Odyssey putter. And he's just the latest uh, young gun to join the stable of Callaway with a lot of young thoroughbreds like Aaron Wise, who's 21 years old and recently just won on tour, Sam Burns, and as well uh, Maverick McNeely. Go to callawaygolf.com for more information. Uh, And now let's get to Curtis Strange and Paul Azinger. All right, welcoming back to the No Laying Up podcast, a very quick return guest, which was on just a few months ago at Bay Hill, Mr. Curtis Strange. Curtis, I got a lot of feedback from our podcast that we did uh, back at Bay Hill, but the number one question that people asked me was if I followed up with you on the invite to Augusta National. So we got to address that right off the bat. Wait, <laughs> is, is, is this actually going to happen?
0: You know what? I, I, what's the phrase now? I misspoke, possibly? <laughs> you know what? We'll try to get it done. Let's try to get it done. Okay. All right. It's too hard for me, though too much for you these days yeah, it's too it's, it's pretty hard i'll tell you what it's probably a little hard for you but we'll play the proper taste
2: i'm willing to get beat up by it and find out for myself so but uh thanks for coming on and coming back uh obviously the u.s opens next week we wanted to talk to a two-time u.s open champion as well as somebody who will be uh on the broadcast for fox next week but can you give us a bit about what's what's your personal history like with shinnecock hills
0: well my first year when floyd won was 86 right uh I didn't like the place at all. The first day was on Thursday. The wind blew 30. It was about 50 degrees, and it was raining. And so that had a large impact on my impression of, of Shinnecock. And I was staying in a house with Jay Haas and somebody else and myself, and we were all out of there Friday night, so neither none, none of us liked it too much. But going back in the 90s, i got to tell you, I love the place. I fell in love with it. You know, we had decent weather. I mean, you're always going to have some wind out there. But I just fell in love with the tradition and the history, and I really got to know a little more of the history the second time there, and just it's just a wonderful place. It's a great place to enjoy playing every day if you can do that. And, um, and in 04, I um, I uh, I don't think I played, but uh, it was a good finish there. And you have great champions. Uh, it's all of the above. It rolls off the tongue when you mention U.S. Open and Shinnecock.
2: Do you, what did you, in that first trip where you didn't like it, what did you dislike about it? And then the second time around, what made you actually come around other than the weather?
0: Well, I, you know, that's so much a part of it is how you play. Sure. Quite honestly, when you see a course for the first time and, and you see it in very, very difficult conditions and not just so much the weather the first day or two, but, you know, that's the open setup and, and back in the 80s, 86 was just, just, just tremendously difficult. You know, Fairways averaged, Oh, the average probably 25 yards wide, you know, 24 yards wide with, you know, bad rough and wind is just so tough uh, to to get it in the fairway. Um, You know, I didn't appreciate the rolling terrain at the time, but more than anything else, it's just when you play poorly, you don't like life. You don't like anything about life. Much less your golf. Sure. So that's the way it goes.
2: Where would you? Where I'm curious, like, where do you stay when you play when you play up there? Where do you eat? What's the hang like during U.S. Open week around Shinnecock?
0: You know, for all of our listeners, uh, this is this is the, the the tough part about playing a U.S. Open is the accommodations and where you go is tougher at these courses because they're old and they're in neighborhoods and they're not in a new. You know, town center, two miles from town center, where you can go, like some of the modern golf courses. So, Shinnecock is one just like that. It's out in East Hampton. There's really no nice hotel out there, I'll be quite honest with you, which is surprising. So, we at Fox we've rented like I don't know, 25 houses, and uh, everybody's in a house, and some are closer than others. Uh, parking is difficult from the TV standpoint because we don't have player parking. We're out in a compound. But for the players, they'll all rent houses. Uh, they'll, you know, I don't know if they bring their chefs and all that stuff in, but they'll rent houses and, you know, they'll have their cars. And it's it's not as difficult for them because they will eat at home and, and cook in every night.
2: I wonder how far in advance the uh, the Fox uh, back office people had to book those houses for for this week. I can't imagine...
0: You know what? They started working on them. Uh, you know, at least two years ago, and the girl is already working on like for the year two thousand twenty-one. So uh-huh. well in advance, yes.
2: <laughs> I'd imagine. I can't imagine what those prices are like in the Hamptons during U.S. Open week. But <laughs> how much uh, have you? How much time have you spent up there uh, in the area this year?
0: You know, I went up there one time about three weeks ago. We had a big press day with with Fox announcers and the powers to be with the usga uh mike davis and their powers to be uh most of the guys play the golf course i did not uh we have a large meeting afterwards on course setup the reasons for certain things done tv week you know the we have a new celebration of champions little tv show we're putting on tuesday afternoon for all the past usga champions of 2017 which is going to be kind of cool um, but, you know, all the things that we have to know and which helps our TV coverage, little tips, little bunches, of, you know, little pieces of information, whatever it might be, we get together with the USGA and, and talk it out and i and hopefully uh it shows on the telecast
2: what kind of things did they share with you and what kind of things are you anticipating with the setup and i i was up there for that media day and mike davis's yep. press conference and he kind of talked about some of the changes and whatnot but uh how do you think the course is going to play and what do you think of the way that the usga is dictating on how they're going to set it up <laughs>
0: you know i've given it a lot of thought and i'm ready for this let's, <laughs> this okay number one uh you know, that with the wider fairways last year, some average 50 yards, or the average 50 yards, you know, obviously we learned in a hurry that length doesn't matter for these guys, okay? Bruce Kepka shot, went 16 or 17 under par, and it played 77 or 7,800 yards long. We've got to narrow the fairways to make them drive it in the fairway, the second most important part of the game. So the fairways at Shinnecock are going to be much wider than they have been for the previous three opens. They're going to be 41 yards wide, average 41 yards. Some will be 30. Some will be 50. Uh, that's wider. But let's take into account, I've come around to this thinking, they hit it so much farther than we did so therefore they're not going to be as accurate it's just the numbers okay let's give them a little more room off the tee because we still want them to hit driver and three wood off the par fours but if they miss the fairway they're going to get hammered and as you saw i think there's plenty of rough and they've had a lot of rain the last two weeks so there should be plenty of thick rough up there so therefore the driving in the fairway is going to be a priority again uh What's going to be different Shinnecock than the three previous opens also is that only three greens will have rough around the greens. Everything else will be run off very much like Aaron Hills last year. I don't know if I like that or not. We found out last year or I found out last year how well these guys pitch it off a tight lie. It was not as challenging as the rough would be. We'll see how that plays out. And then as you saw, Shinnecock, the greens, you can't get them up above 12. They have a lot of slope. They're old school, much like Oakmont. And we, I think we saw Oakmont uh, at the point of no return. You know, uh, example, DJ on Sunday when the ball moved. Uh, you know, when you get them like a pool table, when you get them that hard and fast, there's no friction underneath, and the ball can move. That's my answer to, to his ball moving, uh, even though he's still got the, the, the a penalty. But uh, they're going to run eleven and a half for twelve, a little rough around the greens, a little bit wider fairways, and four hundred and fifty yards longer than uh, two thousand four.
2: Yeah, there's a lot there that I want to want to unpack there. So, and you, know, you know, we talked about it on our on our Shinnecock uh, podcast that we did after playing up there. But uh, yeah. since the two thousand four U.S. Open, Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw came in and did a restoration, which expanded the fairways to I think about average of sixty one yards wide. That um, which was, I think, the average was like 26 in the 0-4 Open. They've na- the USGA has narrowed them back down to an average of about 41 yards wide. After being out there, I felt I'm kind of more. I t- I tend to lean more towards uh, wider fairways being better for a championship. Uh, I did think that where they did pinch it in, it made a lot of sense in that it's kind of going to bring a lot more consideration into a lot of the shots where they narrowed the fairway b- like over a bunker where instead of being able to just be able to bomb it over the bunker, they put fescue in there. So you have to kind of dictate the way you the, the line that you want to take off the tee rather than just bombing it over all the trouble. Did you see any of that out there?
0: Well, and, and that's exactly some of the things we talked about in the meeting. The areas that he came in and narrowed some of the fairways to make it more challenging. But more importantly, let's go back to Core Crenshaw. They brought it back to where the fairway bunkers were in play. In the previous opens there, the rough was so tight, you know, they grew the rough in inside the bunker. So the bunkers were five or six steps out in the rough, and the ball sometimes doesn't even get to the bunker by rolling. So they want to keep the bunkers in play. They've actually brought in a couple of bunkers. Uh, Cor Crenshaw did. But I like what they did. In the arrows that we saw, in the before and after that we saw, uh, it looked like it's... It's a pretty doggone good setup. So much depends on the weather. One other thing they did, Cork Crenshaw, that I love is that, as we all know, greens over years shrink. You know, the mower just shrink, shrink, shrinks, shrinks, mm-hmm. shrinks, and they get smaller, and they get away from the bunkers. They, they brought the greens back to the bunkers, made them bigger. They're like 25% bigger, uh, which is true Shinnecock in the old days, which, which looks so much better.
2: To your uh, second point, talking about the runoff areas being increased around the greens and there's not ne- – only few greens have rough uh, close to the greens. I kind of want to get uh, – talk about that specifically. I know you mentioned Aaron Hills and how they had runoff areas similar – um, but I think what happened with Aaron Hills with the, with the rain they got, they didn't get the firm conditions that they were planning for. Um, and I kind of want to just discuss, and I, seeing it last, last week at the Memorial, the Memorial Greens at Muirfield Village are surrounded by pretty heavy rough. And guys that miss greens, their ball was stopping very close to the green. And for guys at that level, I think it's pretty easy to slide a 60-degree wedge under a ball and have it come out relatively predictably. Whereas the, if they get the firm conditions that they want, these runoff areas are going to carry them the ball way far away from the hole. And they're going to have very difficult pitches from tight lies to, and uh, trying to get it on top of tabletop greens that they can't hold. Do you think that, I I guess what is easier for a professional golfer is like a 30 yard shot off a tight lie onto a tabletop or a closer shot from an unpredictable lie like heavy rough?
0: Well, I'm going to contradict myself a little bit. As I said earlier, I think the rough is tougher if you have it four and five inches. If it's, if it's just tough rough, you much rather have the rough because the ball will stop around the green. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a poor shot from a bad lie is six or seven or eight feet. So yes, if your ball runs off 20, 25 steps off the green, uh, it's not that easy a shot, but what I saw last year, and I was really amazed is how well they hit that shot. But in defense of the golf course last year, they had the rain every night and lack of wind, so those shots became much easier if they're firm, like Aaron Hills is supposed to be and Shinny's supposed to be those shots become you know really tough if you short side yourself but you know there's so many there's so many different elements of those type of shots. Uh, you know, are they soft? Are they hard? Is the rough thick and wet or, or crispy? Uh, how tight are those tight lies on the runoff areas? So there's a lot of different, you know, ways in which they can play. But I particularly, for me, I'd rather have the rough because of that tight back right hole location, I can be more aggressive because I because I think that at my worst case scenario, I'm going to go back to the hole location only be eight steps from the hole in the rough. I can make par most of the time. Okay. If you run it off, if I make that same mistake, now I'm coming 25 steps up this slope and a lot of the greens at Shinnecock are perched up. So they will run off. So, um, I would prefer a rough. To be quite honest with you. So
2: as a that that was kind of what I was getting to. The players I think would rather prefer the rough because it allows them to be more aggressive. Whereas yes, the yes. Uh, the runoff areas kind of present a different kind of challenge and kind of it give you enough enough rope to really hang yourself with. You know, guys are going to be. In-
0: but you know, in, in my day, and I, sorry to interrupt you, no, but in my gonna... day, you didn't go to that back right hole location in the U.S. Open because of the rough. That's that's what I've I always see. thought that you learn how to play a U.S. Open. You don't play as aggressively as you do at FedEx this week okay, uh, in Memphis because the rough in the day was always thicker than any other tour event at the U.S. Open. So, And the greens were always a little bit harder and a little bit faster. So you learn how to put it in the fairway, no matter if you have to lay up with a two-iron. You put it in the fairway, you take the longer shot, you put it in the middle of the green. The U.S. Open is about making pars and working hard and saving shots. It's not about making twenty or twenty-two or twenty-four birdies. You're not going to do that in the U.S. Open. It's about saving shots. At Memphis this week and some of the other turns, it's about making birdies and getting under par. So there's an entirely different mentality to to play a U.S. Open uh, than than a lot of other tour events. So therein lies, the, you know the. Does the rough come into play? Yeah, I still rather have the rough, but I don't want to have any part of it either.
2: Yeah, no, that I think you're uh, you're the shining example of making a bunch of pars to win. I think eighty nine. Would you did you make one birdie on the weekend at eighty nine to win the U.S. Open?
0: Yeah, I made sixteen pars in a row, or fifteen <laughs> in a row, and then birdied sixteen. And but yeah, I mean it's it, it's a look at Faldo and back in the nineties at the, at the at the Open Championship mm-hmm. on a bad day, eighteen pars in a row, I believe. So there's, there's that, there's that stubbornness that you have to have, but also patience and, and, and knowing your game that this is the way I have to play because this is the way that wins the U.S. Open. Nicholas played a conservative type of game, be quite honest with you, and you, you you just can't afford to make the simple mistake that you can at other tour events because you're not making 22 birdies during the week.
2: Do you think, and I don't know how much of the, of the course you actually got to see, but do you think uh, they noted that there's 10 new tee boxes? Does the length yep. match, the, uh, match the course? Do you think it's appropriate what
0: they've done with the, from a lengthening perspective? You know, I never think it's perfect, um, especially when you know the course as it used to be. Uh, it'll play the players going there for the first time won't know anything you know they won't know what it used to be like so uh, I don't know i like the old golf courses but you have to do something with the distance they hit it so they'll hit the same they'll hit shorter clubs in these than these holes than we did with back tees. um uh, it, it makes no difference to them as, as i said earlier aaron Hill is at 77 or 7800 length makes no no difference at all
2: So you mentioned kind of the driving being the second best, second most important skill to test. Sorry, I apologize if I missed this. What do you consider the most important skill to be tested in a U.S. Open?
0: I'm going to give you one guess. (laughs) Is it putting? You can't win a tournament anywhere in the world from junior ranks to senior golf without making putts. Mm -hmm. So if I had to do it all over again, Chris, and I really, truly – believe this I would hit half as many balls in the practice tee in my career and I spent the remaining time on that putting green but the putting is not the sexy part and the fun part it's fun to go out there and hit five irons and drivers and hit shots and play with your buddies and have some little games and you know just just mess around on the practice tee putting is boring and monotonous but I would spend more time on the putting green. And when I got to a U.S. Open or Masters where the greens are tougher to putt than, than ordinary, I would spend more time that week on the putting green.
2: Interesting. Um, what is, where does Shinnecock rank for you as far as the prestige from a, from a U.S. Open venue standpoint? Is it kind of more on the ideal scenario for you or an ideal host, or do you kind of prefer some of the new modern courses that uh, the players are going to? i know the answer to this but (laughs) oh
0: gosh well i am old school uh i i like shinny and i like oakmont and wingfoot and pebble and you get my drift i I like uh, the country club and uh, oakland hills and oak hill um Beth Page was a new golf course that was a huge success. Chambers Bay was not uh, from a player standpoint and a viewer standpoint and an interest standpoint, I think. See, I I really believe that the viewer turns into U.S. Open to see a struggle, okay, uh, to work to make pars. And it's our national championship. It should be the toughest week all year long. Uh, But part of that viewership is to, Tune in to see an old friend, a family member, uh, Shinnecock, Oakmont, Wingfoot. You know, they know these courses. It it's a, rolls off the tongue in, in in the same sentence with the U.S. Open. So I like the old ones. Aaron Hills just dis- didn't do anything for me because of the wide fairways. No rough around the greens. Um, it just, uh, you know, I just don't like 17 under par shot at a U.S. Open. It doesn't... Um, it, it it's not the same feeling uh, during last last year during Arrow Hills as it's going to be this year during Shinnecock. Did you have a
2: uh, Did you have a favorite U.S. Open venue from your time? I know you won it at two different courses, and did you have a least favorite venue during your time playing the U.S.? Yeah, Open? I
0: had two: <laughs> the Country Club and Oak Hill. I, I knew <laughs> that was coming. I was just
2: going to skip that one.
0: Okay, come on, stop with the softball. Questions. <laughs> All right, what was the
2: least favorite then? That's the that's the harder one.
0: Um. You know, I played, I loved them all, but the one that was really, really tough for me to play was Olympic. Olympic was quirky to me because of the the, the slope of the, the entire golf course. Nothing against the golf course. I love the golf course. It was just tough for me to play. I played well there one year. I had an outside chance to win. Uh, when uh, Scott Simpson won, but it was quirky. The weather was tough. You're dealing with breeze. Uh, uh, You don't have the all tough. Are you kidding me? Uh, When even par is around, you know, the winning score, you better not make many mistakes.
2: I I don't like making predictions, and I know that everyone's going to want your picks for the U.S. Open, and I won't ask for specific names, but do do you have a type of player that you see Shinnecock Hills fitting the best?
0: Yeah, all the top players. You know, I, I knew you were going to ask the question, and, and, and this is what I look at, current form, and then who has the experience and talent, okay? Uh, and I'm looking right now at the Memorial, interesting Memorial leaderboard after Sunday. DeChambeau is, is an interesting character. He's trending well. He's won twice this year. Can he figure out Shinnecock? I don't know, but he's playing real well. But then you look at some top names in the world ranking that all finish in the top 13 and that are trending well. Justin Rose, Rory, DJ, Ricky Fowler, Justin Thomas, Phil and Tiger had good last rounds. Uh, so there you go. And then you look at the world ranking. When you go down to Justin Thomas, is is it's one hell of a player. He looks like he didn't get bogged down with with too much mechanics. He plays golf. He bombs it. He drives it pretty straight for his length. I love the way he plays golf. Dustin Johnson is probably the most talented player out there. Athletic ability and hitting it in the middle of the club face every time. Okay, Do you make putts or not? So much depends on do you make that par saver that keeps the momentum going or do you go the other way? Justin Rose is playing as well as anybody in the world right now. One a couple of weeks ago, uh, he just he seemed to play well every week he goes out. Then you got John Rahm and Jordan Spieth, of course, and Rory. Can he get the punt? I mean, there's there's a host of top players, but there's three or four that really are the cream of the crop. I
2: was gonna say if you keep going, you might you might name all 156 guys, and then you'll definitely no have... <laughs> no. But I tell you,
0: but you know when you think about it, you look at experience. Okay, JT won the PGA last year, huge for him you know, to win that first major. Dustin Johnson's won one. Justin Rose won the U.S. Open. I mean, you're looking at so much experience and current form, uh, and that's what it takes in a U.S. Open.
2: Did you do anything special in your day to prepare for the U.S. Open?
0: The only thing I really tried to do, I sometimes played the week before and I sometimes did not. It depended on my game. Uh, I just made sure I was mentally and and physically rested going into the week Um, because it's going to be a different week. It's going to be a hard week. I was always exhausted Monday after the tournament, mentally exhausted, because you have to work so hard, especially if you're in contention. Um, there's, you know, it's a different pressure. It's, it's a completely different pressure than any other tournament. It's, it's the biggest tournament for me to play in because it's my national championship. And it's that, it's that tournament that every kid dreams about when he's on the putting green at 10 years old. And I was the same way. And, you know, my dad played in six of them. He was a good player. And he would always come home and bring the memorabilia from, you know, the bag tag and a hat and the scorecard, stuff for me to look at. And I just, you know, just couldn't get enough of it. And then to be able to play in it and then to be able to win it, it is just, you know, dreams do come true. Trust me on that one. So uh, uh, I, I, I just love it.
2: Do you? I know in '88 you uh, you won your first major championship, your first U.S. Open uh, against Nick Faldo in a playoff. Does you talk about it being exhausting at the end of that regulation play? Was there any having gone through that cauldron of the pressure? Did that did that in any way kind of help take the pressure off for Monday? Because having been through so much already to that point.
0: Well, you know, you it, it's all to build up. It's a build up from I like to say from junior golf. You've been you've been practicing for that one the moment your entire life are you going to be ready for that that moment you never know when it's going to show its face and you don't know how but my moment was the bunker shot on the 72nd hole you know you practice your entire life simple bunker shot can you do it when it matters the most well a lot of it is guts a lot of it is technique a lot of it is do you believe in yourself but uh, i you if you dropped if you were dropped from a spaceship in the bunker or the 72nd hole and got to get it up and down, you'd be overwhelmed. But you build up to that moment. And the playoff was the most important round of my life. And every shot was going to be so magnified. But you got to remember, when you get on the golf course, you never relax too much in a situation like that. But you are in your element now. And you do realize you've got to hit golf shots. and You've got to make a few putts. And you're playing a top player. So he's not going to afford you any mistakes and just go get it done. It's a matter of, how big your heart is, and you know, and, and, and everything else we we shouldn't say on air. But uh, you gotta, you just gotta kind of get it done. After a while, after a while, you can't read it and learn it out of books. You just gotta, you gotta man up once in a while and and go hit shots.
2: Was there any sleep uh, that night before the playoff with Faldo? <laughs> uh,
0: no, no. Um, you know, it, there was a lot of there was no no it wasn't a lot of, but I three putted seventeen uh, to go even. I was one up going to 17 and it was a it was a little bit of a um, you know, okay, I got to get over this. You know, I'm disappointed, but I got to get over this quickly and get ready for tomorrow. And you do that. You can't allow what happened at the end of Sunday's round affect Monday because Monday, you know, as I said, is the largest biggest round of your life, most important round of your life, most important day of your life. I mean, this wasn't about golf. This was, you know, I treated it like life or death. And you know, people might not understand that. But when when you compete your entire life and you're wound the way I was wound, um, you know losing that playoff after three putts the seventeenth hole on on Sunday would have been a really tough one to get over.
2: Do you? There's of course no uh, no more eighteen hole playoff in the U.S. Open. What did you think of that decision yeah. from the U.S.G.A. and
0: it's now a two hole playoff? Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, I just. For all the right reasons, it was done. TV costs Fox, if there's a playoff, or in our day, NBC or ABC, costs the TV network an enormous amount of money to do it on Monday. Players want to get the hell out of Dodge. Fans want to get the hell out of Dodge. Volunteers have to go back to work. Can you logistically get it done one more day? Uh, it is so, so tough. Uh, Think about this, too. Think about watching four and a half hours of golf on Sunday, and there's no winner. Now, can you imagine this year, if we go to a two-hole playoff Sunday late, can you imagine the excitement that's going to create? Monday became really anticlimactic for everybody. Not in my day, not when I was in the playoff, but I think for the viewer. So for everybody involved, everybody, it's good. It's a good thing. And... The one question they had to get over, how did we go through the playoff? Is it sudden death? Is it two holes aggregate? I like the two holes. Their big issue, and I talked to them all during this, and they talked to a lot of players. My big comment to them is that they were worried about one shot costing the guy the championship. Well, they've had 72 holes over four days. Don't worry about a sudden death or two-hole playoff costing the championship. They've had four and a half days, so let's get it over with. Let's get down the road and go to the next week.
2: You defended that title in 89 at Oak Hill. You're the last player to defend a U.S. Open title. Like You shot 64 in the second round and just kind of guided the ship into the harbor from that way on. Was that a... Uh, <laughs> barely. <yeah>. Barely. <laughs> was that a, a realistic expectation t- for yourself to, to defend the title going into that year? What was the pressure like? What was the buildup like going into that U.S. Open?
1: You
0: know, the buildup was... Being a defender, and, you know, that gets overblown in the press sometimes is the pressure of defending any tournament. It's another tournament. Um, You want to do well. Um, Did I give myself a chance to win again? You know, I I never really thought of it like that, Chris. I got on to a tournament week and did the best I could. And was I playing well at the time? Yes. Um, I never in my life got on the first tee and said, this is my week or this is my day or anything like that. I didn't overwhelm a golf course with my length my talent or anything else. You know, you, we were all, we didn't, the, the difference wasn't that great back in the day with length and, and, and some ability, but I just, you know, you, know, uh, you get on the T and you, you know, you do the best you can. Um, I forgot your question. Do it again.
2: I just was asking if you, if the buildup was going into that was, Oh it.
0: yeah. You know what? I didn't think much about it because nobody had done it in so long. I didn't even know who the last guy was. Mm-hmm went back to back until i shot 64 on friday and i read about it in the saturday morning paper um uh that it was ben hogan and then they wrote about it and then i shot 75 on saturday and they didn't i didn't hear about ben hogan again (laughs) (laughs) did uh until until sunday night what about
2: 1990 though you're coming back for the 3 Pete. at that point i would imagine that had to be a much bigger storyline going into medina in 1990
0: yeah, it was that was that was um, a, a lot of tension leading up to it, a lot of pressure. Um, because now, now I know, and inside golfers know, I have a chance to do something only one person in the history of golf has ever done. Um, so, uh, I I took it very seriously. Um, I worked very hard at it. Probably overdid. Uh, you know, people said I lost weight. I I did, you know, for six weeks, eight weeks, ten weeks before, that's all I thought about. Every shot I hit on the practice team was for the U.S. Open at Medina. Every single shot. Now, when I played tournaments, which was a good thing, it got my mind off of it, but I went into Medina, you know, stressed, beat up, ready, but uh, I knew what what could happen there. And, you know, I I, I like that I got in contention. I was a little disappointed, but uh, it was a big ass to win 3 Yeah, I would say so. Uh,
2: what uh, You were one shot out of the playoff in 94 at Oakmont, right? You shot 70 yep. all four days. How close – I don't remember. How close were you to making it in that playoff?
1: Well,
0: one shot. Well, was there an 18th I, hole putt? I, I, well, I birdied 18, but I bogeyed, I bogeyed through 14 and 15, or 13 and 15. And 13 – Fifteen and sixteen, I bogeyed. So I felt like I had a pretty good realistic chance of, of of winning or getting part of the playoff after the fact. Um, I, I played really, really well earlier that day, and I don't remember if I got tied for the lead or not, but I got really close. And uh, uh, just I was really disappointed after that after that Sunday. Although I played well, uh, I let a few get away from me, and you can't do that on Sunday at the U.S. Open. So I had only myself to blame.
2: What's the, what's the most you've ever seen someone get affected by the pressure of a U.S. Open?
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, I think you can probably just look at the history books and see who was leading after Saturday and how they did on Sunday. Um, it's, um, you know the toughest time for a golfer in his career is when you're leading a tournament and you're going to tee off at 2 o'clock that afternoon. Yeah. And when you get up at 7 in the morning, what do you do for those, uh, those 6 or 7 hours? Uh, you know there's just nothing to do and so you know once you get to the golf course and once you get preparing for the round now you're in your now you're in your office so you get more comfortable but um, it's hard um, it's <laughs> some can do it and some can't but I don't I don't have any really examples of somebody who blew up in the US Open but there's been a there's been some I'm sure
2: uh, Raymond Floyd won here in 1986. Do you have what? Do you have a go-to Raymond Floyd story or a, a good one of your of your guys' personal history?
0: You know, Raymond and I went head to head two or three times on tour, and uh, he was a friend. He was one guy I greatly admired. Uh, I admired his tenacity and his focus, and you could see it in his eyes. So you knew he was getting into it. Um, I love that. Uh, he didn't say much to you. It was it was hard competition. Um, I I'm I'm happy when he won at Shinnecock. What was shocking to me with Raymond over the years is that his U.S. Open record wasn't very good. Uh, but the weather got kind of gnarly on Sunday afternoon at uh, an 86, and he prevailed. And he prevailed because of his tenacity. Um, he could dig, he could dig down deep, and uh, he could chip and putt with the best of them, and I was, you know, you're not happy for a lot of guys because half the time you really don't care. If if you don't win, you don't care who wins. But I was, I I remember feeling happy for Raymond. Uh, He was a, he was a hell of a player in his day and a hell of a competitor.
2: What, uh, transitioning a bit to what your, your current role is now with the US Open, you joined the Fox team in 2016. Uh, What has your time been like working at Fox and how has that been different from your, from your days with ESPN?
0: You know, it, it, it's, it's a lot different because my role is different. I am actually a roving reporter. I'm on the golf course with the last group, and um, I've actually quite enjoyed it because I'm right there in the mix. Uh, I'm on, I'm, I'm in the in the arena with the players, and so uh, I think what I have to say is 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 very important at times because I sense the way they're feeling, what they're seeing, uh, the type of shot, all of the above. Uh, my role at ESPN was an analyst years ago and then as a whole announcer. So completely different. I've enjoyed Fox a great deal, and mostly because I get to do the U.S. Open some more. Um, it's it's the grandest week of the year for me, uh, although I enjoy the Masters. Don't get me wrong, but uh, the U.S. Open is still our national championship. And if I wasn't doing TV with ESPN or, or Fox, I would be sitting at home like everybody else watching it. And that's not near as much fun as being involved in it. So uh, I enjoy... Watching a Bruce Kepko win uh, his first major because I know what it feels like. Um, I hope to do a better job in the interview afterwards this year. Uh, I was a little overwhelmed last year, but I know what it feels like to to compete under those conditions, to be victorious under those conditions. It's such a it's such a feeling of of of, of satisfaction. Uh, to, to win uh, the U.S. Open for an American, and, and you can see it in their face. Uh, they don't, don't even know what to say, and I didn't know what to say other than you hug your wife, you had shed a few tears, and you hug that trophy, and that trophy never left me for, for two years very far, and uh, it, was, it was a great feeling.
2: When you're out there in the cauldron with the players, do you do you miss your competitive days, or is there a bit of thankfulness that, the, that, those, that those days are behind you and you don't have to deal with that kind of pressure anymore?
0: You know, for a long time I did miss them, um, but I got over that. You know, age does that. Um, but, uh, yeah, for a long time when I was doing TV, when I was 42 years old, I was still playing a lot, but I was doing the TV, and you, you said, hey, I can beat that guy. Or, you know, I can hit shots better than that. You know what I learned in the booth? Everybody, some of these announcers say, I'll learn this or learn that. I didn't learn anything in the booth because you learned how to play the game on the practice tee and playing golf. But what I did learn in the booth is that you don't have to be perfect to win a golf tournament. I always felt like I had to be perfect from tee to green and make every putt I think I should make. And that in itself was detrimental, I think, at times because you expect too much out of yourself and you, you get down on yourself because you're not perfect. And what I saw is that the leader, the winner of the golf tournament, he missed hit shots, but he took advantage of his opportunities. He hit shots, he hit missed fairways, but he made a few putts when it counted, and he took advantage of opportunities. And I wish I'd have known that, had more awareness of that when I was playing. Mm.
2: That's really interesting. Um, last one. We're going to get you out of here on this with uh, where Shinnecock is out on Long Island, just within eyesight, you can see National Golf Links of America. You can see Sabonic. You can see Southampton. I'm curious in all of your travels, uh, what's what's the best 36-hole day in golf?
0: Oh, that was on Twitter here yep. not long ago. Uh, it You know, I'd be hard-pressed not to go to Pinehurst and spend two days, play number two, and there's many pine needles, uh, uh just uh, another golf course and just so many golf courses there. But I got to tell you, if if four guys want to go play two rounds of golf or eight rounds of golf, going to the end of Long Island would be a fantastic trip. You you got Maidstone out there. You've got Friars Head now, a new Crenshaw course that has rave reviews. You've got a couple little public golf courses out there that are fantastic. It's 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 golf heaven out there. Um for about a week, really. This
2: is the part of the podcast where you where you offer to take me to these courses. I don't know if you know the standard protocol here, but
0: <laughs> that's it. Hey, come come see me next week at Shinnecock. We won't play, but we can we can have a beer together and uh, enjoy the enjoy the week. I don't
2: think we're going to be up there, unfortunately. We're gonna we're gonna watch it from here and uh, take in all forty five hours of live coverage you guys are giving us, or whatever that is. So, um, but best of luck next week up there. Look forward to seeing your analysis on TV. And uh, thanks again for coming back on.
0: Hey, thanks again for having me and everybody enjoy next week because it's a special week for everybody. Golfers and the casual viewer, it's it's a special special play for the players as well.
2: Well, you got me all fired up for it. So, thanks again, Curtis. Thanks, Chris. All right, and as previously mentioned in the intro, here is our discussion with Paul Azinger. We get right into it uh, about 20 minutes here talking about the US Open next week at Shinnecock. So, transitioning a bit to what is your career now? You are a broadcaster for Fox. You were a broadcaster for ESPN for a long time. What's the biggest difference between working for ESPN and working for Fox?
1: Really no different. I mean, uh, it's it's the same game. Um, different people pushing butting, buttons. Um, I have a little more influence or input possibly, but not really. I mean, ESPN, the producers there were great. Uh, Mike McQuaid produced for a while. Loomis, who was who's producing at Fox now, was producing there for a while. And uh, I just think that for me i put that headset on doesn't matter what booth i'm in i'm gonna be me and see it the way i see it and uh espn was so professional what a crew we had there what an announced team we had there if you watched uh like watch the british open that phil mickelson won, <laughs> hear those voices gosh what a team that it was, was.
2: That was fun I, and, and Fox is obviously very new, I guess, in, in compared to what you were doing with ESPN. They're very new in the broadcasting game. They started taking over with the U.S. Open in 2015. You came in in 2016, correct? It was your first year doing yeah. the Open. Uh, it seemed like they made a huge leap from 2015 and 2016, at least from my, from my amateur eyes. Did you feel like you came into, when you got there, did you feel like you were coming into a strong situation there?
1: No, I wasn't. Um, I know letting go of Greg Norman had to be really, really hard for them to do. And, uh, but they made a big decision to do that, and then I got brought in. So in some respects, it was pressure. But in other respects, the fact that, that uh, 2015 was so poorly reviewed, there was no pressure. Right. And so my philosophy when I was to go in there was to talk to everybody, Buck and Faxon and all those guys. And the producers and the directors and the cameraman. And so I did. I gave a little spiel on how much I loved the idea of being here, how much I liked this crew, and the, I knew everybody. And, uh, you know, our goal, because we're getting to record history here, is to do everything we can to make everyone around us better. And I, I with all my heart, I believe that that's what we were going to do, and that's what we tried to do. Facts and, and flesh wanted to make each other better. They wanted to make me better. They made me better. They made me way better than I made them because I couldn't throw, you know, stuff at them. But I tried. I mean, we did it all year. Mm -hmm. If I saw something coming up and it was going to be Faxon's deal, I would jot down a little note and say, you might want to share this or whatever the case may be. We were helped each other. And that made a huge difference. And then our graphics were great. Oh, my God. Um, And Loomis and the director, uh, Steve Bine, they deserve a lot of credit. And other people, you know, the replay people deserve credit there's so much that goes on in a a telecast ESPN was great at covering that British Open but you know you got to remember ABC did golf for years and years and years then we lost golf and then uh, ESPN retained four or five tournaments they were all big ones and eventually we got down to zero and that's when I was able to leave and go to Fox and and now Fox we just do the USGA stuff and we're getting better and better at it and a lot you know not to minimize the women's US Open at in Birmingham, But it's nice to be able to get to do the Women's Open before we do the U.S. Open. Our first ever tournament, well, I guess we did a, a team event, but the U.S. Open. I mean, it's like, here we go. New
2: venue. Don't stink. A course <laughs> setup that players were not fond of. The yeah. crazy kind of style of golf compared to what in the old U.S. You guys were not set up very well. You know, in 2015. Fox was not set up very well for, for success. And then 16 was a totally different situation, and I think – Well, I mentioned this to you earlier, but I continue to be amazed at people that just don't care for Joe Buck. I I think everyone has maybe gone through that phase at some point and thinking that, you know, he hates your team. He hates the Cowboys. He hates everyone. And you kind of have that history with him with other sports and. I, but I, you know, I, I'm pretty, uh, pretty apparent in my praise of Fox and everyone, all the replies, the tweets are, yeah, but as long as Joe Buck's Buck on there, sucks. I'll never watch it. He, I don't get it. I honestly don't. I'm, I'm quick to be really hard on announcers and I don't see like I, nobody's perfect. I don't think. And there's not like, a, a, I don't even have like a favorite play by play announcer. I wouldn't say, but I don't think he's anywhere close to being a bad
1: announcer. No, my God, he's like called the World Series twenty times. If you hear Joe Buck's voice, it's a big event. That's just all there is to it. If you, when you hear Joe Buck's voice, it's the U.S. Open. Right? That's just the way it is. And, but I think first impressions—you know—the way twenty fifteen came off. Once they write bad about you, they probably always want to write bad about you. Yeah. Once the Twitter crowd thinks negatively of you, they can't wait to blast you every chance they get. That's just human nature. If they have if good a favorable impression of you. Me and Faldo were, uh, you know, they loved us right away and they loved our stick and um, everybody wrote good about us. Jim Nance came up to me and said, man, you got it made now. I said, how come? He says, because they've all written good and uh, they've all written good stuff about you and they don't ever want to be wrong and they're never going to turn around and write bad stuff. And I thought, well, that's interesting to, hmm. to say that. So we got off to a good start, Buck got off to a bad start, so you can have those people. But I tell you what, he is so thorough and so professional and really is uh, – he's the voice of our telecast by a wide margin. You know, if, if Buck's up here and the next most famous person is way down there, you know, it's just like uh, it's Joe Buck. Mm-hmm. And he's a great broadcaster. He's a real professional. He knows players. He's a good player, way better than anybody ever hosted me before. Tarico was great, by the way, photographic memory and the whole whatever he's got. I don't know, but that's a big brain. Um, Buck's got the same big brain he's really brilliant and he's got a voice like it is just unbelievable and he has you know we, we he has a philosophy how this game how we should cover this and i think his philosophy this year is really going to be uh, implemented into how we handle this you know i believe less is more in golf coverage my wife always says to me just remember nobody's tuning in to hear you <laughs> and it's like that's the truth mm-hmm. tune in to watch the u.s open no matter who covers it and uh, joe buck is really good i don't know Yeah,
2: I think it's also, you know, when you tune in and something like 2015 happens, the the host of the show almost looks like they're at fault, right? They're kind of trying to piece everything together, right, with what's being shown on the screen. And I I was kind of curious to just kind of get, like, an insight into how – and I I can't – you know, we're we're sitting here recording this podcast, and there's you know a camera moving around and whatnot, and it's at times a bit distracting. Talk about when you're on the air on TV. You have people in your ear. You have – how much is going on with – you know, getting ready for the next shot and, and saying the ne- the next thing. That's how you guys are able to keep your focus when this whole circus is going on around you. Is that something that you have to learn, or are you still learning it?
1: Well, I think concentration is a learned behavior personally. Um, if, if, like, Faxon gets distracted and repeats something that maybe I just said because he wasn't listening, Buck, Buck's big sell to us is you must listen when you're on the air. Listen to what everybody says. It's critical. So Faxon will repeat something or – somebody flat next thing you know buck's pencils flying over there doosh, right off the hand he does that, that, you know so but we have uh, the producers in one ear we can hear all the announcers in the other ear and ourselves in the other ear and then there's a guy that can break in that will give you a nugget coming up oh the next hole on 15 jordan speece bogeyed it the first two days he hit it in the water and, and he's talking to you while yeah. you're listening And then Buck and Faxon and I can talk to each other. Faxon's been great, by the way. He's just, uh, you know, I think he's one of the most valuable people in golf TV um, because of how many people he knows. And he's important, whether you like his content or not. He knows everything that's going on as much as anybody. And he's been really instrumental in helping us along, I think. But it's all Joe Buck. He's the glue. And uh, so, anyway –
2: Hmm. What is your experience with Shinnecock Hills?
1: I played there. I think I played twice there. It's just really hard. The greens are really, really hard. I think it's very intimidating off the tee. There's some elevated tee shots that are scary. You know, you can't control your trajectory when you got to shoot downhill. And the wispy stuff, um, you know, I just looked at the stats and the stat difference coming up in these next U.S. Opens. I could probably pull it out of my phone and read them off. Um, I think we're really surprised by the fact that the fairways are significantly wider at 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. There was nothing that felt more claustrophobic to me than hitting off a elevated tee in a crosswind and seeing nothing but that strip, a 26 yard wide fairway.
2: What do you think that does from a competition standpoint? I and mean, do, do you? Kind of, it looks like the USGA is trending that direction. Aaron Hills was the widest U.S. Open in history and the longest. What do you think that uh, you know? I, I talked to Curtis Strange about it on this podcast, and we talked. He said, "I like I like it tough. I like the old school." Yeah, we there. all do. I just pulled up the yeah.
1: stats, but all I can think is Mike Davis, you know, who sets up the course. Now he, he's the, you know, he's the man. I'm just thinking he must have hit it crooked when he was growing up. He's a good player. He must have drove it crooked, so he wants wide fairways. <laughs> but uh, I could be wrong. Okay, just to go over this real quick, mm-hmm. if you don't mind. Number one at Shinnecock in 04 was 26 yards wide. This year it's 30 yards. Uh, three was 26 it's 33 this year four was 26 it's 38 yards wide that's a big difference Mm -hmm. um it gets worse or better if you're a player five is 26 yards wide no four it's 51 yards wide this year six is 26 yards wide this year at Shinnecock it's 54 yards wide I don't understand that um eight is 28 yards wide and it's 64 yards wide this year if you miss that fairway i'm gonna rag on you is all i'm <laughs> gonna tell you as a broadcaster and then nine 28 yards to 41 yards wide so it's a big difference you thought they'd have gone the other direction or at least maintain that but their philosophy may be changed and it may be better for the game because they may get more excitement out of it i don't know um, but they don't do anything without, you know, trying to think it through. Sure. thing about the USGA is we see them so little that if they make a mistake, it's magnified times a thousand. Mm -hmm. And so when they like the ball rolling or something on Dustin Johnson, it's magnified by a 10,000. Um, and then it's just hard, but they are really good guys. They're very thorough. They love golf and they respect the rules of the game and their philosophy is always, you know, not to embarrass the best players, but to identify them. Mm -hmm. And I like that. And, uh, you know, if they think the fairway has to be wider to identify the best player. I don't know. Either that or they I just love Tiger and Phil because they don't hit any fairways. <laughs> I don't know. One or the other.
2: See, I, I was curious to kind of get your thoughts, too, on Aaron Hills with it being so wide. Uh, the scores were obviously very low last year, but I think that course is designed to be played in heavy winds that never really came last year, right? right? So, uh, I think, you know, a lot of people that, you know, maybe only tune in to watch the U.S. Open, they expect the carnage. They expect the the bogeys and the doubles and whatnot whereas i think wide fairways if you introduce if you're introducing interesting strategic elements to it it gives a bomber a chance or a, a non-bomber a chance to play alongside a bomber and we saw that with Brian Harman and Brooks Kepka two pretty different styles of golf but you know if you're able to, depending on where the pin positions are put this the, behind certain hazards certain different parts of the fairway are much more favorable and that golf can inherently be and it, the scores will likely be lower but it, instead it becomes a lot more strategical golf course if the question isn't off of every single tee, hit it long and straight.
1: Well, for a long time, it was put it in a fairway, put it in a fairway, or, or you're done. Right. You're gonna, you won't get to the green. I didn't like that. I like the ability to judge a flyer. They um, got it right at Pinehurst a lot there. Uh, the recent Pinehurst, they changed the whole course, but when it was rough at Pinehurst. Um, and then the other philosophy is simply that the short straight hitter is going to hit driver. Let's see if the long hitter with this much room out there If we can, you know, dangle the carrot in front of him and not just see irons off the tee all week out of these big hitters. I think they want to see the big hitter hit the driver and they're giving him some opportunity. So in that respect, you can love that. Mm And I, you know, this generation is so different. I mean, you got to admire a guy that can put the ball in the air eight or nine seconds and one football field wide, 50 yards wide is too wide. He shot six under or 16 under 50 yards wide. So is, they're, they're great. I mean, they're great. But it's not without risk to put the ball in the air in nine seconds. Mm-hmm. You can make a mockery of the hole, or you can make double or triple in a New York minute if it's offline. My ball is offline. I played close to the ground. And I was taught close to the ground. Golf's meant to be played close to the ground. And they don't think that way now. Now it's really it's like, no, this is the optimum launch to hit it the absolute farthest. And uh, when we got the first time we were able to really see and understand clubhead speed was in the early 90s. And, you know, Mickelson and VJ and Tiger, when they saw their club head speed, they wanted to make it faster. How can I make it faster? I want to hit it farther. They were ahead of everybody by 10 years, I think. John Daly hit it farther naturally. When I saw my club head speed was 115, I wanted to be 115 every time so I could be the most consistent. They didn't want to be 115. They wanted to be 127. And that's what they did. And, they're you know, they're still playing great. VJ plays great still. So does Phil. So does Tiger. Right? Mm-hmm.
2: All right, we had a bit of audio mishap there, but we're back. We're good. Um, So you guys are going to go up to Shinnecock here in the next coming months, coming weeks, I think. What will you do kind of on your scouting trip up there? What will you you be looking for?
1: Well, it's really a media day, and and, uh, we'll be there with the USGA and all those guys, and the whole Fox team is going to be there, and some will get their first look at Shinnecock, and uh, some will get their 15th look or whatever at Shinnecock. A handful of guys are going to play. I'm not going to play it. Uh, But honestly, just to re-familiarize yourself with the holes, what does two look like? What does three look like? What does four look like? You know, the, the big challenge for me when I went to all the British Opens was to remember the holes because a lot of them look the same.
2: On TV especially.
1: Especially on TV. It's difficult. That's why Masters, I think, stands out because everyone recognizes the difference and the uniqueness of each hole. It really is helpful. Uh, but you go to Shinnecock, um, there's a lot of history there. You realize that. Some of the stuff in the clubhouse actually is fascinating and stuff that you could use on the air, I suppose. Uh, but knowing that golf course is um, – it, just as important as a broadcaster as it is as a player. So I will make notes and try to visualize and have a full-on, full-born memory and play the course in my head over and over again before the broadcast starts. I'm not as concerned about the cast of characters. To me, the course is the star until the star emerges. And the star doesn't emerge until after day one. Mm-hmm. And then you can focus on that guy. And then after day two, and then it's happening, buddy. It's the weekend, and then the last day, Father's Day, and all that pressure.
2: So why won't you play it while you're going up there?
1: Oh, I've been – I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure Flesh and and those guys are going to play all the way back. Bacon will play all the way back. Like, man, I ain't going back there. But I don't want to go up either. I'm just not (laughs) going to punish myself. I say my game's not for public consumption. How about that?
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. I understand that. So, All right, Paul, thanks for letting us come crash your Sunday. And uh, for all your insights and stories about your career, it was a lot of fun. So thank you for doing this. Thanks for your time. Hey, it was a
1: pleasure to do it. And uh, we'll have fun at the Women's U.S. Open and the Men's. And maybe we'll see you guys. I don't know if you go to those tournaments or not. But uh, you're welcome. Come on, sit in the booth with us.
2: We'll track you down if that's the case. See you. Cheers.
1: Be the right club. Be the right club today. I yes. mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most!
0: Expect anything!